But tonight we're in Exodus chapter 40, the very last chapter of the book of Exodus. And we are looking at a message called the glory in the tabernacle. So let's pray one more time and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for all the folks that have come out tonight, those who may be watching live stream. We do pray over our state and our nation, Lord. There's uh, kind of a mixed bag. We're, uh, we're, we're definitely a people divided on so many issues. And a house divided cannot stand. So we pray that you'd bring people together and we can show the love of Jesus to people whether we fully agree with them or not. We can preach the good news of the gospel and yet, Lord, there are some things, some worldview things and some things that happen by way of law that are egregious and sad. And maybe some people are just simply ignorant. Maybe some people just believe the rhetoric and maybe some of us just are confused, whatever it may be. But Lord, uh, we pray for clarity and we pray that you would move us towards discipleship, which means that we obey what you say. If we're gonna be your disciples, then you're our Lord and we don't make up the rules, you do. So help us with that, Lord, in every aspect of our lives, in preaching the gospel and walking in purity and all the things that we desire to do. And we all come short of the glory of God. That's why we need the gospel. And thank you that the book of Exodus has pointed that out. It's pointed in that direction to the gospel as well. And I pray that your will will be done. It won't be my voice simply that's preaching the Bible, but you'll, your voice will come through, Lord, and we'll have ears to hear what you say and what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Now, we began the book of Exodus in the, the month of January 2021. I mentioned to you that Exodus means exit. So for some of you who are just catching up, we defined some terms at the very beginning, but the book of Exodus is an exit. An exit from what? Well, in this case, it was an exit from Egypt, from Egyptian bondage, but the book of Exodus also includes the concepts of freedom from bondage and a journey. In fact, the people of Israel will journey to the Sinai you know, wilderness, and then they will journey on from there. And we're going to see kind of the beginnings of that journey at the end of Exodus chapter 40. That will lead into the rest of uh, what Moses records in the book of Numbers and Leviticus and so forth. So as we reflect on our journey in the book of Exodus, which began a ways ago, we began the journey actually in the midst of COVID. We were just coming off a whole year of COVID. It began really in the spring of 2020. So when we launched into the book of Exodus, we were talking about some themes like salvation, redemption, and glory. One of the famous lines from the book of Exodus is, let my people go. And we were talking about some stories like uh, in Santa Clara County where churches were being fined simply for having their doors open. We talked about some stories happening in Canada where Canadian pastors, uh, at least one that we know of, possibly another, were jailed, their crime, staying open during the COVID pandemic because they desired to minister to their people. And so we heard the words of Moses, maybe in a fresh way, let my people go. And you heard me say that from this pulpit. And I was saying it really north of the border, if you will, to Canada, to the ridiculous things that they were doing. Because churches were not being, uh, you know, unhealthy or unsafe. We were taking all the precautions. We were giving people options. Yet the church was experiencing persecution. 
And so we went through that journey as we dealt with some of those things. The people were in slavery. They were under heavy burdens, under the taskmasters of Egypt. And they were even wondering if God cared. And a man named Moses, who was drawn from the water and providentially ended up with the Pharaoh's daughter and raised in her household, raised in Egypt, became the deliverer. And we go back and we remember a scene at a bush that burned yet was not consumed. And it was there that Moses received a call from God. Moses, Moses, here I am. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And God began to tell Moses that he was going to send him to Egypt to confront the Pharaoh. And Moses, as you remember the story, this is actually airing on our radio program, Walk in Truth Radio. So if some of you listen to the program, you're revisiting some of the earlier messages. But Moses was called and Moses had a number of excuses. One main excuse he made to God was that he wasn't good at talking. He wasn't a good public speaker. He had a problem with his speech. And God's response was, who made your mouth? If I made your mouth, then I can use you. And Aaron, Moses' brother, came along with him. And, and eventually they, they came to the Egyptian pharaoh. And Moses declared what God said. Let Israel, my firstborn, go. And the pharaoh was stubborn. And he said, I don't know your God. And neither will I let your people go. Oh, no, I won't let them go. And there were some early disappointments. And the people were commanded to make brick with no straw and it seemed like the plan wasn't working but God had a plan in mind and you know what the plan was right it was 10 mighty powerful plagues and God says in Exodus 12 12 that he was going to judge or execute his judgments against the gods of Egypt with a small g and so he attacked the Nile god and he brought other plagues on Egypt and as we move through the plagues, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. The Bible describes it as a darkness that people could feel. No one wanted to move around. It was extremely dark. And the people were fearful in Egypt, but there was light where the children of Israel were in Goshen. And that plague of darkness preceded the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. That night, God passed over Egypt, and the only way someone didn't die in your house is if you had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. If God saw the blood of the lamb, he would not judge that household. But anywhere where he didn't see the blood, the firstborn died, the firstborn died, the firstborn died. And the Bible tells us that there wasn't one household in Egypt where somebody wasn't dead. And there was a great cry that went up from Egypt on that night, people wailing and moaning and crying. And finally, they said, if you don't let these people go, there's gonna be nothing left of Egypt. And finally, the Pharaoh said, go, get out of here. And you know, before he finally released them, he said, well, go, but leave this. Or go, and he, he wanted to bargain with them. You never bargain with the enemy. You don't bargain with the devil. You, Pharaoh is a type of, of the devil in the book of Exodus. And so finally, he released the people. And as they went out, the Egyptians were literally burying their firstborn as Egypt, as uh, Israel, I should say, went out in triumph. And then they came to the Red Sea. 
And you all know what happened. Pharaoh had a little change of heart and he decided, oh no, they're not gonna get away with this. So he sent his chariots and his armies after them and the people of, of Israel were trapped against the sea and it looked hopeless. But God said, I want you to hold that staff over the sea, Moses, and I'm gonna part the waters. And the Bible picturesquely says, with a blast of his nostrils, God opens the sea. And they went through. This was another miracle on dry ground. And the Egyptian army pursued them. And as they pursued, you know what happened. The Lord closed the sea on the Egyptian army and the entire Egyptian army was drowned in the sea. And the people sang the song of Moses. The horse and rider he's hurled into the sea. Our God is a mighty warrior. And they sang the song of Moses and they celebrated because their enemy had been destroyed. Their enemy wanted to destroy them and God dealt the final blow to the Egyptian army. And he drowned them in the sea. And Israel crossed over and they made their way with the provisions of water and manna and even God supplying against the Amalekites to win a war, they ended up at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord descended in fire and cloud and lightning. And Moses went up. And you remember the people were afraid and they were warned not to cross the boundary. And finally Moses got the law of God. He got those Ten Commandments plus other laws and as he descended the mountain, you remember what happened? There was a sound of war in the camp, but it wasn't war. It was singing, and the people were worshiping the golden calf. And you know the story. He broke the commandments. He threw them down and shattered them. The people were shattered. 3,000 Israelites died in judgment on that day. And a cloud hung over the people of Israel because God said, I'm going to destroy them, Moses. Just get out of the way. And Moses interceded for the people. And there was a question mark over the tribes. And it was this, will God go with us? And God had said, you know what? I, I, I'm done with these people. But Moses became an intercessor, intercessor, a type of Jesus. And ultimately the Lord relented and he renewed the covenant with the people. And Moses came down a second time with the commands and the laws and they renewed the covenant and they moved forward from there. And, and of course, a lot of what we've studied, uh, a good portion of our studies together have been in something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place of worship, literally means to dwell. And God said, I will dwell among the people. I will be in the midst of the camp. Adrian, maybe you can throw up... Um, that first picture of the tabernacle so we can just kind of get an idea. So that, that was the, one of the pictures that we saw. Go to the number two picture there. And let's leave that one up. So um, what we have here is a depiction of the tabernacle that Moses was instructed to build. And a good portion of our studies, we've been moving through the furnishings of the tabernacle. And we'll revisit that in verse 1, chapter 40. We're going to move pretty quickly because some of this is going to be ground that we've covered. The Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 40, verse 1, and said, On the first day of the first month. Now, the first month is the month of Abib, or Nisan. And it's the first religious month, or it's the new calendar for Israel. You shall set up the tabernacle, that's what you're looking at on the screen, of the tent of meeting. So Moses is told what day he's to finally set this thing up. 
and it's going to be on the first day of the first month. Now, the first month, according to Exodus 12, is the month of Abib, and it is in the spring. It's our Easter time. Whenever we celebrate Passover, or we know it, many of us know it as Easter, it's, it falls on our calendar in March, April, in the spring. Well, for the children of Israel, that's the first month on their calendar. It's Passover month. And so it was about a year since they've left Egypt. So just think about it. It's the first day of the first month of the second year. That's in verse 17. Skip all the way down. You can see it. Now, it came about in the first month of the second year. That's after the Exodus. On the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So you can see a year has gone by. They're about to celebrate their second Passover. And it's taken us longer to teach the book than it did for them to get from Egypt <laughs> to this point. And all God's people said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but slow we go, right? Moving through the Bible, teaching it, digging down deep. And so it had been a year. And finally, this building that we've seen, heard so much about the furnishings and the tent and what goes in it and what it represents. Finally, it was time for it to be erected. And it was the first day of the first month. There's a couple of interesting connections to the first day of the first month. Noah, when he got off the ark after the flood, Genesis 8, 13. Why don't you flip over there just for a second? Interesting connection. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis 8, look at verse 13. It says, now it came about in the... In the 601st year, in the first month, Genesis 8, 13, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up, Genesis 8, 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, you can imagine the scene, everything that moves on the earth went out that is, out by their families from the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself in his heart, New King James, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He will never flood the earth again, we know. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Until the Lord decides that there's going to be an end to this planet, new heavens and new earth, it will continue on. Because the one who holds it all together is the Lord. Now, if you turn back to Exodus, let me just say this to you. You've probably heard a lot about climate change. And you all know that climate does change. It gets hot and cold, cold and hot, 
There's periods of time when things just shift and change on the planet. There are scientists that say the whole concept of climate change is a lie. It has become a religion, frankly. Uh, About four or five decades ago, the same alarms were being sounded in our world, and we're just simply repeating history. You may or may not know this, but in the 60s and 70s, they were saying the same thing that they're saying today. Climate change has become a religion. Now, let me just say this. We are to be good stewards of this planet that we've been given. We're to steward it well. We're to do the best we can to care for it. But it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that one nation can focus on what they're supposed to do while all the other nations don't do what they're supposed to do, and we think somehow we're going to make this huge difference. It's, it's an agenda. And let me just say one more thing about this. If you have a biblical worldview, the world ain't going anywhere until God says it's over. We just read it. Now, if you don't have a biblical worldview and you don't believe that, then I leave that to you. You can believe whatever you want. But don't believe the crisis rhetoric that's going everywhere and policy is being made, sometimes ridiculous policy, that hurts a lot of people. And it's based upon a notion that is even scientifically being debated. So I just leave that before you. The Lord says the world's gonna continue until he's done and he makes it new. We should take care of it, yes. I'll give you an analogy. You have a body. You might say, well, some day I'm gonna die and it doesn't matter if I eat ding-dongs every day or broccoli. Well, it does matter. While you may not determine the number of your days, you will determine the quality of your life. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have treats. I have treats all the time. (laughs) I enjoy the sweets and stuff, but you also have to have enough discipline in your life where you eat relatively healthy, consistently as you can, because you want to take care of what God has given you. You see the analogy? You see the connection? So it's the same way with the planet. We'll do our best to take care of it, but The planet's going to be summed up when God wants it summed up. And that's the bottom line. All right, so we're going to move now. As this ark is going, or I should say the tabernacle is going to be erected. We're moving from the inside out. Notice you've got the photo behind you so you can kind of see how this works. In rapid fire, verse 3, you shall place the ark. That's the ark of the covenant of the testimony there. You shall screen the ark with the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. The only thing that's there is the ark. You shall bring in the table. That's the table of showbread and arrange what belongs on it. You shall bring in the lampstand. That's the menorah and mount it, mount its lamps. You can see, if you look at the photo, you can see the placement of each of these things. Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense. That represents prayer right outside the veil leading into the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Testimony, but it's actually on the outside of the screen. And set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. You shall set set the altar of burnt offering. Now we move into the courtyard outside the tabernacle proper in the front of the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver, that's the washing basin, between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the veil for the gateway uh, of the court. There's a way to get in 
And in rapid fire, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, represents God's throne. It was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement to atone for Israel's sin. The table of showbread had the 12 loaves on it, if you will. They would be flat pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes. They were arranged as they should be. This was the bread of the presence. If you skip ahead in the text, you can see these things are mentioned. Skip ahead to... uh, Verse 22, we'll get some detail now. It says, put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the arrangement of bread, there's the showbread, in order on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. It points to communion, provision, ultimately points to Christ as the bread of God. He placed the lampstand, now he's actually doing it, after being instructed, in the tent of meeting opposite the table. On the south side of the tabernacle, it is the light. It had the seven uh, you know, buds for light, and it brought light, and it's representative of the light of creation, the light of redemption, the light of God. God is our light. It was the only light in the place, and it illuminated the uh, tabernacle. Skipping down... Let's see, 24, 25. He lighted the lamps before the Lord just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. That's the altar of incense, the place that represents the sweet prayers of Israel going up to God, like incense flowing up. He burned fragrant incense on it. Moses got it going just as the Lord had commanded Moses, 28. He set up the veil for the doorway of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. He offered on it, Moses got this going as well, the burnt offering and the meal offering, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And from it, Moses and Aaron and his sons, these were the priests, washed their hands and their feet, ceremonially making themselves clean. The water symbolically points to the cleansing that God does through the gospel. He cleans our guilty conscience. He cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. These are all, each of these pieces of furnishing point to Christ and his work for us. We've studied that in the past. And from it, Moses and Aaron washed. And when they entered the tent of meeting, 32, when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court all around the tabernacle and thus and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court and thus Moses finished the work. Now, just FYI, Moses didn't do the work alone. He had a group of people helping him. You could call them a setup crew of Levites. We have crews that set up and tear down at Living Truth Christian Fellowship. Did you know that? Every week, People get here early. They set up the donuts. It's a very sacred space out there where the donuts get set up every week, right? We have deacons that tear things down like the easy ups and so forth. We have a worship team and a tech team that gets here at six in the morning on Sunday mornings to make sure everything's technically patched together and they've practiced and rehearsed. There's a prayer team before first service 
there in my office, in the office at 8.15, praying that the Lord would touch hearts and move in a mighty way. There's people who get here early so that they can serve in Sunday school and check your kids in and make sure that people feel welcome. There's greeters and ushers with a smile and an opening the door and welcoming people. And there's people, friends of yours, who give you a holy hug and maybe even if they're really spiritual, a holy kiss. Maybe not too spiritual. Anyway, and it takes a lot. It takes the body to make a church work on a practical level. If you are not serving somewhere, then you're not really being part of the body. Amen? Now, some of the parts of the body are more visible than others. For example, there's people who work in the church office all week long, they're the parts that are largely not seen. They're like the internal organs. They're not seen, but they're really important. Amen? We spend a lot of time on what we can see. Does my hair look good? Did I shave? Did I do this? Did I curl my hair? But if you got something going wrong inside, <laughs> it's going to make a difference, right? You can have a bad hair day and still be all right. So the point is this, that Moses was an older dude. He didn't do this alone. But he, you could say maybe Moses was quality control. <laughs> he had received all the instructions. He was making sure that everything was set up right. But ultimately, it was a team effort to set this thing up. And by the way, this thing was constructed in such a way that it could be set up in a day. That was the intention, that it could be moved because they were moving towards what? The promised land. And so this was a makeshift place of worship. It could be set up and torn down as the Lord would lead. And the moment that Moses finished, doesn't it feel good to finish? John 17, 4, Jesus said, I have glorified you, Father on the earth. I have finished the work you've given me to do. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. It was now time for the divine seal of approval to descend upon this Worship facility, it was finally finished. And Moses probably stepped back at some point and he had to feel good. Let's go to the next slide for a second. Because now the glory was going to come down on this place of worship. And the, you can see that the tribes of Israel were uh, camping all around it. Everybody lived in a tent at this time. They were in the wilderness you can see the altar for the burnt offerings. You can see the bronze laver for washing before you as a priest could go into that holy place. And now, finally, when the building was constructed, the glory of God fell upon it. A building means nothing if the glory of God is not there. Amen? There are cathedrals all over the world today that nobody goes into anymore for worship. They're beautiful buildings void of the Spirit of God. And I'm gonna make an analogy from buildings to you. Do you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? You can be the most beautiful person in the world, but if you don't have the Spirit of the living God living inside of you, there's something missing have you wondered why you feel a bit empty? Have you wondered why you could do all the external things and impress everybody and their brother, 
But if you don't have peace with God, you know it. I can tell you the number of times I had all the externals down pat, driving a red Maserati, doing my thing, impressing the girls, doing whatever I was trying to do. And I would look in the mirror at the end of a, a night of partying and I would be empty. And I had to turn up the music to try to silence, silence that voice because I knew that I was nothing without God. I knew what I was doing was wrong. It might seem exciting and cool at the time. You get the point. So Moses finished the work. How far has Moses come? <laughs> From being at the burning bush, he's like, I'm, I'm the wrong guy. You can get somebody else. I can't talk. I can't do it. To all of a sudden, this whole nation now is, has this place of worship. They've been set free. The Exodus is about freedom. You want to be free? So the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, that's our Hebrew word kavod, it means the substance, the Shekinah of God. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a divine uh, expression of who God is. It filled the tabernacle. F.B. Meyer says, the brilliant light of surpassing glory, the glory of the Lord was undoubtedly the divine Shekinah. Shown from within, from with the tabernacle itself, so much so that the very curtains were transfigured by its glow and the whole place was transfigured and rendered resplendent with glory, glorious light. And there God came down. The Bible says when Jesus came and moved among us, he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. The purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh, in a body, in a tabernacle, was to move among his people, to come and rescue, to save, to teach us what life is about, to teach us that worship is what life is about, to know the glory of God. Moses was not even able to enter into the tent of meeting 35 because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was in the house. <laughs> and not even Moses, who had gone up on Mount Sinai, gone into the other tent of meeting that we've studied, and the cloud would come down, but now not even Moses could go in there. The glory was so thick. And you might ask, why? Wasn't Moses pretty much the right-hand man, the mediator? How come he can't go in there? Because there's a lesson. And here's the lesson. Only the high priest, only once a year can go into the Holy of Holies where the glory is. And he can only go in there with the blood of a sacrifice. And we're being taught that even Moses needs the atoning sacrifice. There's kind of a shift, if you will, in the message being sent here. And the message is this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I can't approach God in the condition that I'm in, even if I'm Moses, because Moses was still a sinner. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. As good as a dude as he was, as humble as he was, he was still a sinful man. And Moses still would need the atoning sacrifice, and so do we. Do you know the Bible teaches this, that God dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. 
He dwells in light that cannot be approached. If you tried to approach God in his glory, you'd be dead. You'd simply die. He's too powerful. Our God, the book of Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. Do you see the picture behind me? That doesn't do it justice, but I don't think anybody's gonna walk in there lightly. In fact, there were warnings to the high priest that if you walk in here the wrong way, you're dead. (laughs) Why? Because God is holy. And the only way that we're going to stand before this God who dwells in unapproachable light one day and be right and be good and be okay is through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And so this structure becomes a picture of what must happen. Can you go back to photo number two, Adrian? You must experience the sacrifice. You must have the sacrifice applied to you in the outer courtyard. You must be washed in the blood of the lamb. That's the labor. You must go in and partake of the bread of the presence who is Christ, the living bread who came down. You must embrace the light of the world expressed in the menorah. You must send up your prayers to God to be right with God in the incense altar. And then, and only then, Can you go into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying what? That the way is now open. We don't have to do it this way anymore. The temple would be destroyed within a generation from the death of Christ around AD 30 to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is history 40 years, one generation from the time that Jesus said, do you see all these magnificent stones? The temple uh, supplanted the temporary tabernacle. The tabernacle moved around till they got to the promised land. Then the promised land, Canaan, they, Jerusalem became the temple mount. You know the story. Then the temple was built. It's called the Solomonic temple. It's the temple of Solomon. It was the permanent structure. But that structure eventually the temple of Herod, but it was destroyed by the Romans. There is no temple now, and there's no need of a temple. Why? Because the Lord is our temple. (laughs) And we're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And by one sacrifice, once for all, for all time, Jesus Christ has paid the ransom price. Now, I simply pray, and I go right into the Holy of Holies, and I go boldly. Amen? And I come not to a throne of judgment, but to a throne of grace. And do you know who's there waiting for me? The God-man who ever lives to intercede for me, sympathizes, empathizes with my weaknesses, hears me when I cry, lifts me from the miry clay. This is our God. All of these pictures in the Old Covenant were to point us to the greater Moses, the great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, died on that cross, completely innocent, to pave the way so we can get in there. So we can see God face to face. This is the book of Exodus. It's a book of salvation, a book of redemption, a book of glory. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the priest couldn't go in there. It was so thick with the glory of God. But now, now we can go in. One day we will look upon him. 
whom, who was pierced for our transgressions. And so these final verses now as we wrap up, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud, that's the glory cloud, was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud 37 was not taken up, it did not lift up and move, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. The book ends looking forward to their journeys, which will be chronicled in the books ahead like Numbers and Deuteronomy. But we get a summary statement, and it's here. Whenever that cloud lifted up and moved, they packed up and moved. And if it stayed settled on the tabernacle, they stayed put. You know, our walk in Christ is very much like that. There are times that God's going to call you to move. And when he says move, you better move. <laughs> Moses put it this way. If you don't go with us, we don't want to go, Lord. So whenever the Lord prompts you to move, move. If the, you know, they had gotten used to following this glory cloud. It had been the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They had seen the cloud on Sinai. They'd gotten used to it a bit. But now this is a lesson in walking. Let me explain. Your Christian life, my Christian life is described as a walk. We walk worthy of the calling. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk in the same manner as he walked. And here's simply what he says. When I lead, you follow. Wherever the glory cloud goes, you go. When the Spirit says move, you move. When the Spirit says wait, you wait. <laughs> this is what we all need to learn. Amen? And it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy always discerning what to do and how to do it and when to do it and when to wait and when to be quiet. But you know what? You've got a pretty thick instruction manual right here. So if you spend some time getting to know this better, most of your questions will be answered. You may not like the answers, <laughs> but they're there. And our job is to follow. You know, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, follow me. He said it over and over again. The greater glory that's coming, which also is prefigured here, is the glory of Jesus when he comes a second time. We've talked about that glory in recent studies on Sunday morning, the glory of the Lord filling a darkened sky, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessing, the blessed hope of the appearing of the great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. Revelation 1.7 says, every eye will see him. They will see his glory. And on that day, of course, our response will be, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. A greater glory is coming. A glory that will fill the sky and fill the whole earth. And a glory that we've got a down payment on because we are jars of clay housing <laughs> the glory. Amen? And that's what we want. We want more and more of it. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be uh, more and more led by the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for... This whole journey through the book of Exodus, we're grateful for every step of it. 
uh, the technical parts, the thrilling parts like the plagues and the confrontation with the Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea and so many amazing moments in this book. There's, there's much that we can reflect on that we've learned and we're grateful for every lesson along the way. I, I suppose the biggest takeaway from this book is that we've experienced an exodus out of Egypt ourselves, uh, away from a life of sin dominated by the taskmasters that we, we carry, Lord, and the burdens that we carry. The Pharaoh becoming a picture of the enemy and how there's so much deception and sometimes we get stuck and we become slaves to our sin. And then the deliverer comes. We hear the voice of Jesus through the gospel. And he sets us free. And off we go to learn his ways. And ultimately, Lord, we know this, this group of people was headed for the promised land. And that's true for us as well. We're headed to a land of promise. And we haven't yet fully known what it's all going to be like, but we know one day we're going to get there. We know how the story ends. And so we have great hope. I want to pray a prayer of shalom and hope over this group uh, on the heels of, you know, a divided country, an election that many find disappointing. But elections are not the end of everything. It's not the end of the world. It's, Lord, we know that ultimately you want to use us in our generation, in our state, in our world. Help us be busy about your business. Help us move when you move. When the cloud moves, help us move. When you say walk, help us walk. We call you Lord, not just Savior, but Lord. So help us follow you. Would you keep your head and heart bowed for a second? If you have not met this God who makes you acceptable before his holiness. If you've not met the Son, Jesus Christ, it's only through his blood that you'll be able to be right with God. Otherwise, you'll have to approach unapproachable light, and it's impossible. But the good news is that this God that would judge you because he's holy is the God who died for you. Do you know him? He is a prayer away. We think of that altar of incense and it's a prayer like this. Maybe you'd pray it. Father, thank you for sending Jesus as the deliverer. Rescue me from my sin. Rescue me from the clutches of the evil one, the taskmasters that have beat on me. Lord, all the struggles of this life, I want to be free. I'm going to trust in the Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and took the penalty I deserve, who defeated death by rising from the dead. I believe it, Lord. I repent. Pray it if it's you. I trust you. Maybe you're a prodigal and you need to get back to walking with him and serving him, not just being a spectator. Lord, help me to walk with you. Use me in my generation. Father, for this precious congregation, thank you for the journey through the book of Exodus. We're grateful for it. 
And we're grateful for everything that you've taught us. I pray that the lessons will go deep into our soul. And I thank you for every blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.